0: Good morning, everyone. How are you all doing today? Good? Then what do you need me for? You don't need me if you're doing good, huh? Do you? You know, all this we do, we do for a very good reason. There must be a reason why we all get together like this, at least once a week. Many of your faces we see here much more regularly, much more frequently than just once a week. Some of your faces I see every day, getting sick and tired of that now. But there must be a reason why you all come here, whether that is here or somewhere, wherever. Whenever we come together, we get together, whenever people get together, there must be a reason for that. It's very clear to me why we do that. Absolutely. Is it as clear to you as it is to me? why we come together like this why you give up your time when there could be so many other things you could be doing you know how busy and hectic life is life has aged you all the things that you had to do in life it's taken toll on your life you've aged Some of you had to sacrifice your youth, doing a lot of things in your life. Many of those good years, in fact, if you were asked, would you like to have another go at it? Some would actually say, if I could get my youthful years back, then I certainly would, so Swami because they were things that I would have done differently. Many of you will say that. You may feel that this is perhaps the only time in life where you've done something right. Because whenever you did something, you wanted something to come out of it. We don't just do things without an expectation at the end of it. But the pity is, it's not always we achieve that objective that we set forth to achieve. Despite the many things that we've all been doing in our lives, by this point I hope it has become clear to everyone that anything that you've done beside the practice of the Dhamma, comprehension of the Dhamma, living and breathing the Dhamma, and becoming one with the Dhamma, I hope you've now realized, or at least beginning to realize, has not really gotten you. Anywhere close to the objective that you initially and originally set forth to do those things. Before you do something, you always think, what is the purpose of me doing it? When you wake up in the morning, you must have a plan for your day. There must be a specific purpose as to why you wake up. Because there are days on there where you don't really have anything planned. You wake up in the morning, what do you do after that? You turn over in your bed, tuck yourself back into bed again, and sleep. Those are the days where you feel like you've not really got a plan for the day. So you just stay in bed. But you know when there are days you have specific things you want to achieve. When you set your mind at something, in fact, maybe even the previous night before you fell asleep, you made a resolve, you reminded yourself, the moment I wake up tomorrow morning... I've got to get this, that and the other done. So you check your alarm. Sometimes not one alarm, you might even have another alarm, just as backup. And then you might even ask someone to wake you up, just in case you miss the alarm, you don't hear it. See these are the ways in which you prepare yourself when you know that the stakes are high. When you know that this is something that you really want to do, you really want to get There's no stone that you leave unturned. Everything and anything is worth paying the price. For me, what we are doing now is like that. Us coming to here together and working on a shared objective, that shared objective for me is worth paying any price. Question to you is, are you feeling the same as I do? about this course. This is a personal question and the answer will be different to each and every one of you. For some, it may be, yes, absolutely, Swami answer. I'm prepared to pay any price. Not just for being here, as in physically not just being here, but being in this, in this mission, on this path, doing what you're actually doing now, Let's be honest, you've never been so serious about Nibbana in your life before, have you? And you can say the same thing as every day passes. Tomorrow, hopefully, you'll be able to say, I've never been this serious about Nibbana. And the day after, you should also be able to say the same. Otherwise, nothing's happened the previous day. So as you take one step forward, every step forward on this journey, you begin to realize that I've never been this serious about Nibbana take yourself back a few years take yourself back 5 years 10 for some of you maybe 15 for others was there ever a time in your life where you were this serious about your salvation put nibbana to aside because nibbana can mean different things to different people in this audience put nibbana to aside but there is one thing that all sentient beings strive for all sentient beings, it's not just human beings, it is not just the Devas and the Brahmas that you may know. Anything that has life in it, anything that has life in it, strives for that, although they may never get themselves on that path because what they don't have is noble association. That is why your life in the Sugati is so precious. But ask yourselves, if you take yourselves back a few years in life, take 5 years, 10 years, 15, 20 years for some of you, your salvation was always the desired destination. You wanted to be happy. But the path you took, the things you did, took you nowhere near them. But there was no one to question. As we question today, were there people that, that, that questioned your decisions back then? When you decided to do your A-levels and you chose your stream, some would have chosen art, some would have chosen science, others would have chosen math, and various other streams. And if you were a local student in Sri Lanka, you would have chosen one of these three streams. If you'd done your a levels somewhere else, you would have chosen a different stream. Whatever your stream was, people never questioned you, are you sure that this is going to lead you to your happiness? They didn't question that. They just said, are you sure about the subjects you're doing? Are you sure about the jobs that you're gonna get after the end of this? Are you sure about your future career prospects? Who do you want to be when, you're, when you grow up? These were the questions that people asked. But they all forgot to ask you one question. Are you dead certain that getting there is going to get you to your ultimate destination? No one asked that question, no one. I mean, how can they? How can the blind lead the blind? See, this is why I feel this, what we are doing here today, is very different, ladies and gentlemen. We've never done something like this before. It's one of a kind, we've never done something like this before. That's why for some of you this might seem very strange sometimes. You know, why have young men and women, like yourselves, like ourselves, given up, renunciated a lay life? A lay life which we had really no complaints about. Today, there are 101 things I can say about it, why this life is incomparable to the life that I used to live. But back then, when we actually gave up those lay lay lives, we didn't really have any complaints about them. In fact, most people would have been envious. There were those who looked at us and thought, wow, one day I want to be like that person. I wish today they said the same thing. But what a pity it is that today most of those people who used to look at us and say, one day I wish to be like them, they are nowhere to be seen today. You are all we have now. I don't have any friends who used to go to school with me here today. None of you did. None of you are my neighbor. None of you are my relations. None of you are my friends from back when I was that kind of person. So you see, we have a room full of people, but not a single soul, who used to admire who I used to be, who used to think, I want to be like this man one day. And there were plenty. But today, none of them are here. See, they followed me to some extent on this journey. Oh, how they missed the trick. (laughs) If only they'd stayed on another year. Soon after college, there were those, because I I, I used to speak to people, I used to encourage people, I used to inspire people, and I used to tell people, you know, get the most out of your lives. I'd, I'd love to speak to young people, people just like ourselves who wanted to get somewhere in life. I'd love to speak to people like that. And there were those who admired, not me necessarily, but where I was, and they wanted to get to the same destinations. So they were there right from after college. Then they were there throughout university life. Three years of uni life and they were three years worth of people who got together and they wanted to be like me. And then I started work. A few years of that, about five years of that and there were people who, were, who wanted to be like me. So then college life, university life, work life, what, 10 years in total. And then, when I finally realized the right thing to do, at that point, we all parted our ways. (laughs) Do you see the irony in that? So they all went their way, I went my way, and then we all found each other. You'll all have similar stories to tell. Your stories will be very similar to this. You'll all have had friends. You still have them, some of them. But you all have had friends, best friends, maybe relations, cousins, maybe brothers, sisters even, who are very close to you. they associated with you very closely until you realized that's not what I want to do. I want to do something else with my life. And then you took a different turn and now they're nowhere to be seen. So I ask you the question once again. Are you dead certain, as sure as I am, that this is the path that's going to get you to your happiness? But, as you can see, the things I used to have, I no longer do. The people I used to have, I no longer do. The friends I used to have, I no longer do. The money I used to have, I no longer do. In fact, a lot of things I used to have, I no longer do. My possessions are a bare minimum. If I had to relocate, all I'd have to take with me is an arms bowl and a couple of robes, and that's it. Not even this. So are you sure this is what you want? Are you okay that perhaps in maybe some months' time, maybe in a year's time, maybe in a few years' time, you might also end up here? Is that okay? Or oh, are you worried about that? Because there are people who get scared about that. So that's when they impose restrictions on themselves. Too much of anything is not good. Yeah, Not even nibbana. <laughs> not even the Buddha Dhamma. Too much of anything is bad, people will tell themselves. Are you like that? Is too much of happiness too much? I'm asking you this question, are you as sure as I am that this is where you want to be right now? You know you could always walk up and leave. No one's keeping you tied down to that chair. There's no one outside holding a gun. If you leave this room, I'm going to shoot you. No one there. It is not against the law to leave this room right now, you could. So I have a question. Are you sure this is where you want to be right now? Are you? For what price will you stand up and leave? I'm willing, someone comes up and says, I've got an offer for you. Here's the offer. And they say, well, there's a carnival in town. Shall we leave? Let's go there. Would you then stand up and leave? There's a carnival, there's a musical. The debut new film is out. Michael Jackson's reborn, he's performing. Will you get up and leave? I don't mean this sermon. I mean what we're doing here right now. What is your price? They say, everything has a price, don't they? Everything has a price. So what is your price to get up and leave this room? Someone says, if you leave this room, I'm going to give you a nice car. That car you always wanted, get up and leave. A nice house. You're probably, maybe, still working on your house, maybe you're building your house. Maybe you wanted to extend your house. Maybe you want a swimming pool at home. And someone says, "Well, so, you know that swimming pool that you always wanted? I'll get that for you. You just have to leave. Let's go. Are you willing to leave? You sure? Don't just be nodding, because I have someone outside. Someone's willing to give you a green card. The green card. Hmm? Do you want to leave? Ask yourself this question and make sure you're happy with the answer. Be true to yourself. Because if Nibbana is to work for you, you have to want Nibbana. That is called chandar. Sanda is one of the faculties that you need. You have to have it to want, to, for Nibbana to work for you. You need Nibbana. I want Nibbana. As I said, Nibbana can mean many things to different people. But what I mean here is, you need to want freedom. You must want freedom. At any price. No ifs, no buts. If you're going to give me freedom, I'm going to take it. If you want happiness, then... No ifs, no buts, if I can give you the path to happiness, no questions asked, you take it. If that is your attitude, then this sermon will be of use to you. What we are doing here is going to be of use to you. Whenever we do something, we must always do it with purpose and do it wholeheartedly. And do it because we want to do it. If there, if there are things that we do half-heartedly, chances are they don't work out. But then it's very easy for us to point our finger out and say, that's why it didn't work out for me. We tend to point our fingers out there. But, if we are true to ourselves, the problem was usually, normally, within ourselves. So, if you want Nibbana, if you are here for your deliverance, If you're here for a freedom that has never come to you, if you're here for happiness, you're looking for the ultimate happiness in life, and if you're tired and exhausted from all the things that you've been doing in your life, all the things that you've been doing have aged you, ladies and gentlemen, I can look at you, I can see you right now, but I wish you could see yourselves. I'm the mirror that looks at you right now, but I wish you could see what I can see right now. Look at the toll that life has taken on you. And still you're there and I'm here. If life has taken such a toll on you, at least the bare minimum that life should have given you was the opportunity to be here. Be here I mean, in the Buddha-sasana, but you're still there. This is not a criticism on you. This is a criticism on some of the choices that were made. Those choices, in the moments you had to make those choices, there was no one to ask. It's not your fault. There was no one to ask. There was no one to show you right from wrong. There was no one, as I say, to question you on the choice you were making when you thought that becoming whatever profession you were interested in, becoming a doctor, becoming a teacher, becoming an engineer, becoming a lawyer, becoming a scientist, when you thought that that was where you wanted to be, what you wanted to do in life, and you determined that was your ambition, who was there to question you? Are you sure that this is going to take you to ultimate happiness? A happiness that can be with you forever? Who was there to question you? No, this is, a, this is the only, people, only thing that people questioned you. Puta, do you have an ambition? I remember the day when I said, no, what is an ambition? I don't, I, I don't know what that really means. Well, when you grow up, you have to want to be someone. Like what? I asked. Well, don't you want to be a doctor? I said, okay. What do I have to do? Oh, you got to study, you got to study and study hard. I don't like to study. Well, tough. If you want to be a doctor, you got to study hard. Then you got to take the exams. You got to work hard. And so I went around asking a few people. Someone said I had to have an ambition. What should it be? Well, what do you want to be? Uh, Like to be a doctor? Yeah, sure. Go on. See, you know, the adults that surrounded me when I was younger they were not responsible, unfortunately. I was surrounded by irresponsible adults. Here's what I expected of an adult as a child, who didn't know his right from wrong. As a child, what I expected from my, from my adults was that they would make sure, they would ensure that I was making the right choices because I was naive. I didn't know which choices I had to make and what the, answer, what the right choices were, so I just went on making choices. When I was sat in front of my TV, watching cartoons, whiling away the is watching something useless on TV, watching musicals, sport, whatever, just watching stuff on TV, films, I didn't have the adults who came to me and questioned me. They said, switch off the TV, go and do your work. That's all they said. But what they didn't ask me was, why are you watching them? What are you hoping to get out of watching them? Are you sure that this is going to get you that? That question was never asked. And I don't think that question was ever asked of you either. But today, 25, 30 years on, today I have people teachers around me who ask me these questions. I have noble friends who ask me these questions. Why are you doing what you're doing right now? What is the purpose of that? Back then, we didn't have that. We were surrounded by irresponsible adults, weren't you? Yes, they loved you. Oh, there was no question about that. Right from your parents. They loved you. They doted on you. They would have given their life. They gave you everything they had Except, they were irresponsible because they didn't question what you were doing. They didn't question you to check whether what you were doing was going to get you to ultimate happiness. So today I have to question that. Otherwise you will tell me one day that I was also an irresponsible monk. So I question you today, are you sure you want to be here today? Are you sure, do you know that this sermon, what you're going to be doing throughout the day today, You're going to be engaging in various meritorious deeds. You're listening to the Dhamma right now. There's another sermon in the afternoon. You'll be offering alms to the monks and the Anagarikas and the Anagarikas. So you're going to be doing a whole day's worth of activities. Are you sure that this is how you want to spend today? Are you? Or is that a question mark still? If you are sure, then I'll still ask you, why are you sure? What makes you so confident that spending the day in this manner is going to get you to your destination? Because you need to have this answer. It's not sufficient for me to have this answer on your behalf. You have to have the answer. Weren't there things we did in our younger years where others, had tend, you know, they had the answers, but we didn't? When you were younger, you, had to do your, you were forced to do your homework. You were forced to go to school. Forced to. On some days, they would have, it would have felt like that. You didn't know why, you didn't want to, but someone else wanted to, and you had to do what they said. So someone else had the answers, but you didn't have the answers, so therefore you weren't happy doing it. Today, to be happy doing what you're doing right now, you have to have the answer to this question, why are you doing this? Why are you here? Why do you want to listen to the rest of this sermon? This is going to go on till about 9.30. For about the next two hours you'll be here. Why? Don't tell me circumstances. We walked into the monastery and someone guided us into this room, so we are here now and I'm just waiting to see what happens. No. Not that this is not an art gallery. We are here because we want to achieve something. Are you sure that being here will help you achieve that? Are you all sure about that? If you are, then... Great. If you're not, then I want you to come to that realization as soon as possible. Because if you don't, soon enough someone will come up to you, your old friends, they will come up to you and they'll start questioning you. Why do you take yourself to the monastery on a Saturday? What's the point? You didn't used to be like this. You used to be a fun person to hang around with. You used to be a cool guy now you're just boring. People come and tell you that. We used to hang out on Saturdays. We used to go out Friday nights. But most of you here now, those Friday night outs, they don't happen anymore because Sunday morning you have to leave home to get here. But So, so the friends who found you interesting because you were happy to go out Friday night, today, you're out of those social circles. You've had to make new friends now. These are your friends now, and you won't find them in the pubs at night. You won't find them clubbing at late, night of the hour, late hours of the night. Because we are all here with purpose. So I just want to make sure that you all know why you're here today. If you know why you're here today, then you will understand why I'm asking you to bring your palms together in veneration of the Buddha. Then you will understand why the Dhamma is your only saviour. Then you will understand why the Sangha is something that you've got to do. Why this practice is something that is so important. Otherwise, it'll feel so so much of a. It'll feel like a hassle. Feel like a bother. It will over time. It'll begin to feel that way. It'll feel laborious. It'll feel like a drag. But if you have your eye on the prize, that final destination, that ultimate happiness, and you know that this will certainly lead you there, then even when the times get tough, you will still soldier on. And that is very important, ladies and gentlemen. So if you're all clear on that purpose, then let's use today, let's take another step forward to help you get to that destination. So before we do that then, let us bring our palms together. In veneration of the Supreme Enlightened One, there was no one to motivate Him like this. (laughs) There was no one to encourage Him or to inspire Him. He had to be self-inspired, self-motivated, self-encouraged self-driven, all that had to happen within himself. Without a teacher, I have no idea how one can get to Nibbana. But he showed us that that is also possible. Fortunately for us, we don't have to do it again. So with immense gratitude towards the Buddha for having discovered this path and so clearly laid it down for us, let us chant the namaskara and pay veneration to His holy name. Namo Thas
1: Bhagavato Arhato Samma Sambudhas. Namo Bhagavato Arhato Samma sambudhhas. I thought it
0: would be good to go over some of the basics today. We've been discussing the practice for some time, what we call the Pratipada. But how do you practice if you are not sure what to practice? Anicca, dukkha and anatta is the essence of Buddhist philosophy. Your practice is the practice of anicca, dukkha and anatta. That is what your practice is. Refraining from the unmeritorious deeds is part of the practice. Listening to and comprehending anicca, dukkha, anatta is part of your practice. Putting that comprehension, applying it, is also part of your practice. These three things comprise the sasana. So when the Buddha said, "Sabba papa sakaranam, that is, you are abstaining from the unmeritorious deeds. In fact, for that, you don't necessarily need to understand anicidu Because there are those who don't understand anicidu and they still refrain themselves from doing unmeritorious deeds, don't they? (coughs) You still feel the need to do it, but you don't. You exert some self-discipline. And you can even think that, you know, if this hurts me, it hurts others, right? So if if I find this hurtful, then others will certainly find it hurtful, so therefore, I don't do it. For some people, this is their life philosophy. <clears throat> there might even be some in the audience who used to live by that code. My code in life is if it hurts me, it's going to hurt others, if I like it, then others are going to like it. So that was your, your compass. So whether you wanted to or wanted to refrain from doing something. And that's good. That was even before Anichidu came into your life. So sabba sakarana. Great. Kusala Supasampada is the second one. That is to understand Anichidu kananatta. That is what Kusala Supasampada is. Comprehension of Anichidu kananatta sachitta pariyodapana This is putting your understanding into practice. E'tang, buddhana sāsana. That is the buddha sāsana. If you can do these three things, then you are golden. But to put something into practice, you of course need to know and understand what the doctrine is. So today, let's go over some of that. This will be a refresher for some of you, especially looking at the monks and the anagarikas, Mahatmias at the back. This will be a refresher. Most of this stuff we talk about day in, day out. Also, maybe the Srila Savikas and verses and so on. We talk about this stuff every day, all day at the monastery. But even still, it's always good to go over the basics because ultimately it is the basics that you need. Even when we go to the Vali or practice making wherever we are the Vali our practice is essentially putting Anicca, or the application of Anicca. There is nothing else we do, really. That is our meditation. Our meditations are our contemplations. Contemplations on Anicca. In other words, how does Anicca apply into this situation? Whatever that situation is. So the first thing to understand then, ladies and gentlemen, is if, you're, if you want to do this, which I know you now want to, as you want to do this, you first got to understand that whatever is available in the environment around you, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the taste, touch, all of these things, the thoughts that come into your mind, They're all valid objects for your contemplations. There are no objects that are invalid. What I mean by this is, there's never going to be an environment, even if you go find yourself in Aviti one day, that is still fair ground for the application of Anicca. Anicca. But unfortunately there you're not going to have the wisdom to be able to do it. That is why keeping yourselves away from the Dugati, the woeful states, is always a good thing to do. When you are in the Sugati, you now have the ability to apply and understand the Dhamma. First you have to understand it, then you have to apply it. We are all capable of understanding this truth because we have been born in the Sugati, which means we are now equipped with the mental faculties, the mental tools that we need, the mental acumen, if you like, to understand the Dhamma. Whilst we were all in the Dugati, we didn't have this ability. So even if the Buddha had preached the Dhamma, we would not have been able to make any sense of it. Today, we can. So now that you're here, everything is fair play. So any sight is a good sight. What do you mean by a good sight? It's applicable. Anicca is applicable. Any sound, anicca is applicable. So now, as I say these things, I've, I need you to ask yourself the question, <coughs> Excuse me. I need you to ask yourself the question, is this true for you? Is any site applicable? Or are you still someone who looks for a better place to apply? You know, say, say for example, if you are at home, do you still feel that Nibban is not something I can do at home? I have to be at the monastery for that. If you are at the monastery, maybe you are eating your, having your food, are you someone who thinks, I have to go to the Valimalu to do this? If you are in the Valimalu, are you someone who thinks, there are too many people in the Valimalu right now. So many people, you know, it's too busy. I can't, I can't do this. I have to find somewhere where I can isolate myself, remove myself from everyone else. That's when I can start to do this. If you are still like that, then you have not understood what is needed to be done. Right? Let's not be in any doubt about that. It's only a fool who does not like to admit that they're wrong. Only fools don't like to admit they're wrong. A wise man is always happy to admit they're wrong and they're willing to be shown that they're wrong. So anyone here in the audience, you need to first of all realize that anywhere is good for Nibbana. Whether that is here, whether that is at home, whether that is at your workplace whether that is even sitting down in front of your tv watching tv having lunch or going taking a walk right wherever you are nibbana is applicable so then you will ask me this question so i am so if that is so why do you ask us to come and become anagarikas anagarikas if if nibbana can happen anywhere then why do you want us to be here that is the pratipada that is the practice i'm referring to the application of anicca. You know, when the Buddha speaks of anicca, he expresses anicca as a characteristic of something. It's like saying, I say wet. It's a characteristic, isn't it? Wet is a characteristic of something. So you can say water. Then there's water somewhere, then you can say it's wet. So, anicca is a characteristic. What is anicca? As in, not what is the definition of anicca? I'm asking you, which things, which objects demonstrate this characteristic? Not this characteristic. Anicca. Which objects demonstrate the characteristic of anicca?
1: Hmm?
0: Every object. All objects demonstrate the characteristic of anicca. So if all objects demonstrate this characteristic, then there can't be a certain group of objects or a bunch of objects to which you say, I can apply anicca if I'm in this situation, take me somewhere else, and sorry, anicca cannot happen there. If you are still like that, then you haven't understood the Buddhist teaching of anicca. First of all, admit that. That's okay. Because if you don't know where you are, where you've gotten wrong, how can you fix yourself and take yourself forward, right? So let's say we stop the sermon and I say, let's start doing some meditation. And I want you to start to now contemplate on the Dhamma. So as you're doing that, someone's, someone wants to listen to some music. They take their phone out and they start playing some music. What, do, what are the rest of us going to do then? What shall we do? Hmm? Shall we sing along, hum along, or leave them alone, walk out of the room? What are we preparing ourselves to do? Contemplate, right? We are preparing ourselves for meditation, application of anicca. Are we no longer able to do that now that a music, some music is being played? Are we not able to do that anymore? We can So if ever you have this idea, or have had this idea, or you feel that the environment in which you are is either conducive or not for your practice of anicca. Does anicca apply to this kind of rupa? Then please get yourselves out of that. Anicca applies to all rupa. So if there may be times when you are reminded of your past. Hmm? Maybe you're in the valley Mali, you've just listened to the sermon and you want to go and spend some quality time, quality time in the Valley right? Quality In your quality time, you're, you want to just reflect on Dhamma thoughts. Like right? the points in the Dhamma, you want to now today go and contemplate on Padichisamupad. You've just learnt it and you want to reflect on that. Right? Back to front and front to back, you will just want to reflect on that. And you want to walk into the valley Malva. And then the moment you step foot, now you are reminded of all your chores at home. Six, you know, a few minutes into your, into your meditation time. Remember when you sit down at home to meditate? This is the reality of things, isn't it? You set sometimes a timer and say, right, I'm going to meditate for the next one hour. You set a timer just in case you carry on, you know. And no one's there to no one's there to wake you up. So you set yourself a timer. No, I don't mean falling asleep. I mean, you know, in case you completely forget that there are other duties and responsibilities that you have to do and you just carry on for like seven days at a stretch. <laughs> so we have to set ourselves a timer. But you know, now, when you set yourself this target, for the next hour, I'm just going to contemplate on the Dhamma. I think we've done this so many times, enough times for us to realize that five minutes into this, on a good day, Five minutes into this, you're already starting to think about the work you have to do. You're starting to think about your children, your school, you know, ch- children homework. You're starting to think about paying the bills. You're starting to think about the mortgage payments. You're starting to think about getting the car washed, right? You're starting to think about the, the, the dog, and now you've got to take it to the vet. You're starting to think about your neighbors. You're starting to think about every blooming thing except for the thing that you wanted to sit down and contemplate on. Except Patichasamuppada, everything else comes to the mind. Is it just me or...? Yeah? Ring a bell? Brilliant. Your memories will come back. Sometimes thoughts that you feel, you, you're trying to forget. You know, there are some things you want to forget. You know, just completely erase it from your memory. Even they start coming back in, that, in those times. Maybe, you know, loved ones, they passed away. Memories come back. And they come particularly at these times where, and then you begin to think that, you know, when I sit down for my meditation, my dead mother comes and speaks to me. Because in that moment, you're reminded of them. My grandmother comes and speaks to me. Only when I sit down for meditation. When I'm watching the TV, no. It doesn't bother me at all. These are problems that people have. And then sometimes, you know, some, some people com- complain about sensual thoughts. Just when I start to meditate so, I mean, all these dirty thoughts start coming into my mind. I really struggle with that. Some people have these problems. Some say, you know, my experiences from my past, my experiences from when I was younger, the, the, those, the, that, the, those things that I used to do, and I really want to forget them, but they just keep coming back to me. Sometimes, you know, if you'd shouted at someone, maybe had a fight with someone, these things start coming back to you and you start feeling regret, remorse. And you know, you think right now I have to make plans to reconcile those. Right? So all sorts of things come into your mind when you sit down for meditation. All sorts of things except the, the one thing that you wanted to contemplate on. In these moments, it, you know, they can be very disheartening, can they? can't they? And then you start to tell yourself, "I'm never going to be able to do this." So you try for the first five minutes. Then you think, mm, "Shall I just go and you know wash my face or something?" So you stand up, you go, just go for a walk, get some fresh air, come back and sit down again. And you start trying. You know, you you got to get credit to you for trying. Then you might think, you know, still my my thoughts are still lingering here, there, everywhere. I'm going to go and maybe get myself a nice cup of tea or something and then maybe try again. Right? So you go and do that. Then you maybe say, I'm going to just try and get some sleep. Maybe then it's going to work. You come back again. And then sometimes, when you just about try to or get yourself on that track, you know, contemplating on dependent origination, which is what you wanted to sit down and reflect on, ten minutes later, you are in fact asleep. Yeah, you don't even know, you've fallen asleep. So this is how that hour that you set for yourself passes by. Most days, if you have done anything more than five minutes, I mean, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good meditation session. Most days. Usually, your contemplation time is spent Just thinking about all sorts of things in your mind and you fighting those thoughts, trying to get what you want to think into your heads. That is your fight. Agreed or not? You can see I'm an experienced meditation master. I mean, let's face the truth. Let's not pretend like, you know, this doesn't happen to anyone, and it's, you know, it's just my problem, no one else must have this. No, everyone's like that. See, there are two ways of approaching this problem. There are some people who practice jhanas. And what they do is, they try to rid all these distracting thoughts from their minds, and they try to focus their attention on the object of their meditation. So they try to remove all these distracting thoughts. So whenever something distracting comes to the mind, for a while they will drift off, but then after that they'll come back to their focus, and then again it's going to happen, and they'll come back again, again it's going to happen. So this just keeps on happening. But over time, as you keep doing the same thing, it becomes easier Sometimes it can take maybe months to even years for some people. Maybe some people, 20 years, 30 years. If you can continue to do this for 20, 30 years of your life, for some people this can be possible. Then there are those who have practiced this in your previous lives. If you've had some practice in your previous lives, then this will come to you sooner rather than later. But for most people, you know, there's not, there would not have been an opportunity to practice. If the Buddha says, to be born human is like a one-eyed turtle surfacing every once every hundred years and then for them to be able to see the sky by lining up their only visible eye with the two halves of a yolk that have come together in the middle of the vast ocean and then to see the moon Or to see the sky at at the very least, right? If that is how rare it is to have been born human, then just imagine how frequently, how do you think you would have been born yogis even, who practiced these kind of meditations in your previous births. So chances are we've never done or tried something like this before. So therefore, You know, if you take a population of a million, maybe there's one person in there who can sit down and within half an hour, an hour, maybe two, three hours, they can get their focus on one object. If you take a million people in population, right, then maybe there's one person in there, one in a million. For the rest of us, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be what we've always been doing in Sansara like a monkey jumping from tree to tree, that is what is going to happen to you. The moment you start to sit down for meditation, your mind is, start, is going to start to wander. So therefore, we have to resort to the second method. And that second method is the contemplation of dukkha anatta on any and every thought that comes into your mind. That is why I asked you earlier, if there's someone in the audience who starts to play some music, are you going to get up and leave? That's a bit like when you're sat down for meditation, sometimes your favorite song plays in the background, doesn't it? You hear your favorite song. Maybe the lyrics start to appear as well. Maybe the teledrama you just watched last night, You know that starts to come in. So it's just so many, too many distractions to actually get you to focus on one thing. So therefore the second method is far more, I, like, actually, I can't say it's more effective because it's horses for courses. You know, it works, one thing works for one person, the other works for someone else. In my experience, it has always been that contemplation on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, no matter, whatever, no matter what comes to the mind, that has always been much more effective for me, personally. Up to you which one works for you. So then, it's important that we know how to apply Anicca any and every object. So now we have a question. Do you? If you do, you can be meditating at any time and at all times. If you are awake, you can be in meditation. If you don't, then you're going to have to find a way to practice a jhana. I mean, let's face the truth, the facts, these are the two ways in which you can do this. So either, Remove yourselves immediately from your lay lives Because in your lay lives, how are you going to find the time to practice jhanas? You have to be sat down, right, for years at a stretch And all you can do is wake, get up and maybe go and find some food to eat right? And someone's going to have to maybe at least prepare something for you Or you're going to have to sustain yourself on the bare minimum Because, you know, how can you go and do a job if you want to practice jhanas? That's, that's incredibly difficult like I said, unless you have previous practice, okay, if you want to start doing Nibbana from here on, and if you feel that this is the first time I've actually become so serious about Nibbana and I want to dedicate a part of my life to this, there are only two ways you can do this. One is, you practice your jhanas, But to practice your jhanas, you're gonna to have to leave and set, a, leave aside all of the other work that you're doing. So if you have children, I have no idea how you're gonna be able to practice jhanas certainly in this lifetime, because what's going to happen after children? Grandchildren. Yeah? So, you know, let's face the truth. So if there are parents here, for instance, I don't know how you're ever going to practice jhanas. So don't ask me how, because I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. It's almost impossible, I think. This is only my personal account. There may be others who have ways and methods that it can be done. I'm not discouraging you. I'm actually showing you an alternative. And I have plenty of reasons to explain to you why I feel that that method will be more effective for you. Because with that method you don't need to try to find time away from your duties and responsibilities. You don't need to find time to isolate yourself from everything else and everyone else and just, you know, be by yourself. You don't need that with this other method. And that other method is, just keep your eyes open. Let anything come into your eyes. Keep your ears open. Let anything come in through your ears. Eat whatever you want to eat. Let any tastes come into your mouth, through your tongue. Just experience the world, but experience it with mindful awareness. The application of dukkha anatta, no matter what comes through your senses, is the practice that you need to do to get yourself to nibbana, That is what we do. Most of us at the monastery, that is what we practice. And that's why even when we have meditation programs, what do you do mostly? Meditate. No, we, we, <laughs> we market it as, medit- as a meditation program. But When you actually come in, it's actually more contemplation. Because we understand this, folks, right? Even if you came here and spent a day here, two days, a couple, you know, a week, maybe say a couple of weeks. After that, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to go back to your lay lives. Let's be realistic. And in your lay lives, who's going to give you time off to sit down and meditate? You know, you can take time off work, but can you take time off children? If you're a mother and father at home, can you take time out from from your children? You're going to have to look after them. Can you take time out from paying the bills? No. Can you take time out from washing the car, washing the dog, feeding it? You can't. Because you've already built a life around you with all these objects and people and things and so many things going on. Now what you really need is a way to treat yourself on the go. That's what you need. It's like today we have on-the-go meals, don't we? Because people don't have the time to sit down and eat. They don't they don't have the time, luxury of time for that, now you have to eat on the go. Your driver drives you to work and you are sat in the car as a passenger taking your meal. So therefore, I think it's going to be more, from far more effective in this 21st century with a bunch of people who don't have the luxury of time to set aside, sit aside and isolate themselves from everything and then practice the jhanas to actually use this method the contemplation of anicca, no matter what comes into your mind. To do that, you need to understand anicca. So that's what I'm going to go over now. And we'll take a few examples, we'll try and understand how we apply the principle of anicca to anything. Before we do that, I have a question, and I'm going to leave you with that question. I'll ask the question and I'll leave you with the question. If we have time, we'll cover it at the end of this talk or I'll just leave you with the question. <clears throat> the more advanced practitioners in the room may, have, may, may find it easier to find an answer to this question but it's a, it's a question worth pondering over. So I'll give you the question. Do you remember... When you exercise, so if, you know, whatever physical activity you do, it doesn't necessarily have to be exercise, but when you actually work, when you're doing some work, or if you're at the gym and actually doing exercise, or maybe climbing up a hill, or maybe cleaning the house, you know, whatever activity you engage in that exerts energy, the exertion of energy is generally tiring, isn't it? Is it not? The exertion of energy it's tiring. It's a tiresome activity. <clears throat> so, for example, if I ask you to stretch your arm out like this and hold it there for a while, after a while you're going to say, Swaminas, it aches, it hurts. Can I put my arm down, please? Because it is actually going to start to hurt. However, your heart, it has been beating from when you were born. In fact, even when you were in your mother's womb, your heart started beating and without skipping a single beat, it's going to keep beating until until you're dead. That's the heart as one example. Take your digestive system. Once you put something in your mouth, for whatever food you eat to come out in that ungodly manner that it does, as feces, there's a lot that needs to happen within your body to transform, take out all of the nutrients from it, take out all of the, the energy that is possible to, take, to be taken from that food and just put out the excrement. Right? At, that takes a lot of work inside. you agree? So your stomach, your uh, liver, your, all these organs that you have inside, they have, to, they have to work very hard. Your large intestines, your small intestines, right? all of these organs, they're, they're really working their socks off trying to digest this food. Does that hurt you? Is it painful? That's not painful. Your heart's beating, 24-7 it's beating. Even when you're asleep, it's still beating. Is that painful? That's not painful. So there's still work going on inside. That's work. But that doesn't hurt you. you. It doesn't ache. Yeah? That is also exertion to some degree. But, it doesn't hurt you, but, whenever you are physically doing some activity, exerting yourself, maybe carrying some weights, doing the shopping, washing, right? No matter what you do, after a while, let's take a simple example. Now, you're sat down here, and you're going to be sat down for the next two hours. Two to two and a half hours, you're going to be sat here. What if I ask you to keep standing for the two hours? One, this is okay, you can keep, seat, keep seated for two hours, no problem. But if you were stand, stood for two hours, that's going to hurt, isn't it? The question is, why is that so? That's the question. Why is that so? The exertion of energy is painful. But there are things going on inside your body the digestion of food is one of the best examples I can give for this. Your heart's beating and so on. That is not painful. That's happening all the time. It takes about six good hours for your food to digest. Maybe chewing your food, you know, it's still not painful. You, know, you, don't, you don't complain about the pain of chewing food. You just chew your food, you swallow it, and then after that you know, it goes down your food pipe, and then what's going on here, you don't even know until you need to go to the washroom. It's only then you realize that what has been put in now has to be taken out. But until then, there's a lot going on here, but you know, you are none the wiser. Uh, the question I have for you is why is it that it is designed in that manner? Now, I know you'll tell me, Swaminath, it's because we don't have nerve endings. Right? The muscles, they have nerve endings, so therefore, when muscles are exerted, you feel pain, but inside there are no nerve endings. So your, your intestines, they don't have, what I mean by nerve endings is the sens- sensory nerves. You know, there are no sensory inputs to your brain to say, you know, something's going on here. In a way that you feel them actually, you know, physical feel, like this, you feel this, you feel this, yeah. You don't feel it in that way, my question is why? Why is it designed in that manner? So think about it, we'll come back to that later. Let's come back to anicca for now. Let's take a few examples and try and understand how we can apply anicca in your life so that no matter where you are, you can always be contemplating on, on the truth. Right, so here's an object. This is an object. What we're trying to work out now is, how do you apply anicca to this object? How do you apply dukkha and how do you apply anatta? If you can learn that, then this object can be substituted by, with any object and the same principle applies. Okay? I have in my hand a pen. When you see this object, you don't just have a name for this, and you call it a pen, you actually feel, you perceive rather, that this whole thing is one package. In fact, if I took the cap off, and I ask you the question, what does this belong to? Don't you have an answer? Hmm? What does the thing in my right hand belong to? You will tell me the thing in your left hand, Swami. That is why if I put this cap on a different pen, you'll, st- you'll feel something's not right. Does the cap complain? Does the pen complain? No. In fact, would the cap not serve the same purpose on another pen? If it could fit, it would still serve the purpose. So, this cap, you feel, this is honestly your perception. right? Now I want you all to play with me here. Okay, Tune in and tune in. Well, I'm trying to explain to you the, princi- the, the simple, the most basic and the fundamental concepts of, the, of Buddhist philosophy, so you can understand this teaching, so you can understand this teaching and also then apply it into any situation, any object that you come across. This pen, or rather this cap, you feel, you perceive, was actually built to serve as a cap for this pen, this particular pen. You feel that way. Now you know if you actually took a step outside that, you know that you know in the factory this the body of the pen was probably manufactured separately. if you've seen the manufacturing process, you know watched videos, whatever this the manufacturing process right then there's the there's the the rear cap the, the, this cap that's another part. this is manufactured separately. Don't worry I'll give it back in one piece. <coughs> Then you have the, what shall we call this, the tube, 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 yeah, this is the nib, the ink tube, yeah, let's call it the ink tube. The ink tube is manufactured separately, the nib is manufactured separately, and then there's the carbon inside that is manufactured separately. All these are manufactured separately. In the manufacturing plant, it's even possible that actually some of these components are not even manufactured in the same plant. Some of them are probably manufactured elsewhere, right? and they are imported, and then what they do at this company is actually they assemble all of it together. right? So that's that. Then you have the barrel. This is manufactured separately. In fact, there might be a manufacturing plant and all they manufacture <laughs> are barrels. They don't manufacture any other part of the pen. They just manufacture a barrel. Then there are the caps. See, you see, now you have at least one, two, three, four parts. don't know if you can see them. I'm going to take this into my hand otherwise it's going to fall. You can see at least four parts, there are three here, and here's the fourth one. These four parts they are individual parts, but do you not honestly have the perception that these four parts belong to the same object? Let's say I lost this cap, which happens a lot, doesn't it? Hmm? You lose this cap. What do you tend to do if you can't find it? Huh? <laughs> you stress and you vex, and then but now you have to find a solution to the problem. You'll generally go and find another cap. I used to have, uh, used to have a friend. <laughs> I used to have some really weird friends. Of course, I was weird, so, you know. <laughs> I can only have weird friends. They used to have, if it was a red pen, they'd have a blue cap on it. And the blue pen, they had a red cap on it. So I asked him, why? Why do you do that? So he said, well, if someone comes and asks me for a red pen, I can tell them, no, this is not red, it's, it's got a blue cap. <laughs> And then if someone asks for a blue pen, they can say, no, it's not a blue pen, it's actually a red pen, that's a red cap. Because as you know, people only borrow things, they never return them. <laughs> he was a teacher, so he always had to have his blue pens and his red pens with him to mark books and whatnot. So when people take these pens and they don't return them, you know, it puts him into a huge inconvenience, so that was his way of dealing with it. Now, so what do you do when you lose a cap? You find another one, right? Does it have to be the same colour? No. If you go home today and have a look in your drawer, you'll find plenty of pens that have caps of a different colour. What does that tell you about the cap? Is this here to belong to that pen? Was it ever made to actually belong to the pen? I'm talking about made. Now I'm talking objectively, not subjectively, okay? Objectively, this object, was it ever made to be put in this barrel specifically? Hmm? Was it ever made to to specifically be put on this barrel or just about any barrel? Any barrel that had this shape because it has a groove here, right, and there's there's a structure inside whereby this fits in nicely into this and it clicks, right? Just about any barrel that can take this as a cap. These two will serve their purpose, won't they? So in other words, this cap was actually designed, it was built in the manufacturing plant to serve as a cap. Full stop. Not a cap to this battle. Do you all agree with me on that statement? Hmm? Everyone? So once again, this cap was only designed to be a cap to serve its life as a cap not a cap to this specific barrel so these two guys they never knew each other until someone took this barrel and put this cap on top of it fair enough? okay. but having said that when you hold this pen in your hand you perceive something that is not characteristic of this barrel, and it's not characteristic of this cap, what is that, that which you perceive? You perceive that this cap belongs to this barrel. Don't you? So, for instance, when I return this pen to the gentleman, and say I, I got a, another pen from the audience that was also read, you know, same make, same brand, in fact, the same manufacturing line, the same, same stock, right? And I took the cap of that pen, and swapped it with the cap of another pen in the gentleman's face. As I do it, I show it to him and then I return the, the, the pen that he lent me, but now with a different cap. Won't the gentleman feel something odd about it? But doesn't the cap serve the same purpose? It does. So it does the same job, but still you feel that now something about the pen has changed. Where is that coming from? is the question we are here to answer. This weird feeling that we get, this sense of belonging that we get, this perception that all these things are part of a single unit. All these things are part of a single unit. That this pen is a single unit. All this comes as a single package. Where does that feeling come from If it's not in any part of the object. This is the question we are trying to answer now. First of all, I need you to answer this question for me. Do you think that that feeling, I'm just gonna refer to it as a feeling, okay? It's actually a perception, right? So this perception, let's use the word perception just so we're all clear. So this perception, if you agree with me that it's not in any part of the pen, because it has to come from somewhere, right? When I show you this pen, you have that perception. But it's not in any part of the pen. Is it in the space between the pen and you? Is it somewhere here in the medium? Is it? That that perception? It's not. Is it in the eye that sees the pen? Is it in the optic nerve? So if it's in the optic nerve, if we swap the optic nerve with another nerve, then you should not be able to get that perception. But you do. So it's not in the optic nerve. Is it in the brain? It's not in the brain. So then, this perception, the source of it, is actually the mind itself. Now we have a problem. The mind is now experiencing something subjective that is not in the object. Therefore, this is a subjective perception rather than an objective perception. The feeling that this is a single package, the perception that this is a single package, when in fact, all this is, are a bunch of individual things in a specific arrangement. Are you all clear with what we just discussed there? You've got to be solid with this understanding, folks, because that is when you can apply this even when you're not here. And you can now apply this to any object. Yeah, so I use examples so that you can then substitute this with anything else and Continue with your contemplation. Is that all clear to everyone? One more time, just for clarity. What I hold in my hand, we refer to as a pen. There's nothing wrong with making that reference. There's nothing wrong with giving this arrangement a name. In fact, if we took this part out, you wouldn't buy this. Because if you went to the shop and said, can I buy a pen please, and someone gave you that, you say, no, no, I don't want that, I want a pen a fully formed pen, a complete pen. It's only a complete pen you actually refer to as a pen, otherwise you'll call this a, a pen without… what do you call this part? Any names? If this is the cap, what is this? Huh? The thing? Oh, the t- the t- <laughs> The thingy! <laughs> okay, so… So if, if someone sold it to you without that, or if someone sold it to you without the cap, you're not going to walk home with this because you say, no, no, something's missing in that pen. It's not objective, is it, what it's missing? If, if someone sold this to you without this, do you think that the barrel feels that there's something wrong with it? Does the barrel have a problem with that? Does the, uh, the tube have a problem with that? So there is no part of this actual pen that has any issue with that. The only issue is the issue that you have in your mind. What that means is, your mind has a perception of something, you know, a package which you feel is a complete object. That is a unit, an entity. So now when I refer to the word entity, when I use this word entity, I need you to recall what we just discussed from here on. Okay, so from here on, whenever I use the word entity, I need you to recall what we've just discussed. What have we just discussed? The fact that this pen objectively is merely the parts in a specific arrangement, but you perceive that there is something more than the combination of these parts here. You perceive that there is something more than the individual parts, together. That's why, when I take the cap off, and then, let's call this a lid, if you don't mind, take the lid off, take the the tube off, take the barrel away, and then now you say, the pen has been dismantled. Don't you say that? You say that the pen has been dismantled. Which pen? The pen that was, is now dismantled. But when these parts have been taken away, where's that pen? The pen that you perceived, where's that gone? Has it gone somewhere? Now it's, so, was it there then, if it's not gone somewhere? When you bring the parts back together, does it come back again? Nothing comes, nothing goes. There's no coming or going here, it's merely, this is what we call a manifestation. I don't want you to fall into this trap to think that there is nothing here. So if someone asks you, what is this? Please freely and feel free to answer the question with a pen. It's not about the word, it's about how you perceive it. So you shouldn't fall into this delusion that there is nothing here. Let me tell you what is here and what is not here. Just to try and get that straight. Here's what is here, first of all. There are the parts. There's a lid, there's the cap, there's the barrel, there's the tube, there's the carbon, there's the nib, okay? All of that, they are here, and there's something more than that. When these parts come together, there's the manifestation of a pen. That is also here. That's why certain elements of the periodic table have been combined, moulded, melted, Formed, structured in a way that this manifestation was made possible. You know, there's a reason why man manufactured a pen. You know, it's not, this was not an accident. Yeah, this was well thought out, this was designed, this was engineered and you had, a pen was born into this world. This is a manifestation. That is what there is. So don't ever answer the question with, what's here, don't say nothing is here. We are not talking about nothingness. Nothingness is not a Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist, Buddhist concept. You'll have heard of Shunyata. It's a term that is used in some schools. This Shunya or nothingness, if you want to use it, you've got to understand in what sense is it acceptable to you to be used. It's acceptable in a certain sense. So then let me explain to you what is not here then. And then if you use Shunya to explain that or to refer to that, that's okay. Here's what there isn't. What there isn't here is a pen that is independent, that is remote and removed from the parts and their effects, the causes and their effects. I want you to understand that this is the effect the net effect, the resultant effect of all of the causes that are participating and contributing to this manifestation. Those causes are participating in this. See, this cause is not participating in this right now. But now it is. This is no longer a pen. This manifestation is a pen on a saucer. Don't you agree? This is a saucer. This is a pen. This is like elementary school, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, there. yeah. So I'm, I'm coming to that, okay? So this is a saucer. This is a pen. This is a pen on a saucer. For a pen to manifest, you don't need this course. For the saucer to manifest, you don't need this course. But for these two together, now you have a pen on a saucer. These causes, all of these causes, are required to participate and contribute their net effect. Each of these causes are actually contributing something to this. Don't, Don't you see? It's contributing something. They're all contributing. You are a group, aren't you? If you take, say, the right side of the room, the left side of the room, and the middle of the room. This is one group, another group, and another group. Let's take this side for instance. Isn't every person on this side participating, in forming that group? If there was anyone who was on this side of the room said, no, no, Swaminas, I'm not participating in that, then I ask that person to leave. Right, okay, step out, step away. Someone else also says, I'm also not participating. They also step away. And let's once they do it a few times, where's the group now? If they all did that, there is no longer a group here, right? So then what do we conclude from that? Each individual cause is contributing, and each individual cause is participating in that manifestation. What is manifesting? Not the individual people, but their collective effect is manifesting. So this effect of a group, just like this effect of a pen, this effect is not merely the causes. It's not just the causes. It's not just all of the causes either. It's the effect of the causes. Each cause contributes an effect. Each cause contributes an effect. And that net effect is the manifestation of a pen. Now, you can't you can't visualize a situation where there's a cause, that, but the effect is not there, because that's, it makes no sense to say that. Even hypothetically, You know, if I said, the, the, the cap is here, but it's not contributing the cap effect. I mean, you can't even imagine that, right? The cap is here, but it's not contributing the cap effect. Let's just say, for argument's sake, that were possible. So you have the cap, but it's not contributing the cap effect. Then you have the lid. It's not contributing the lid effect. Now you have all the causes, but they're not contributing their respective effects. Would you have the pen? You won't have the pen now. You'll just have a bunch of things. Now, this is completely insane for me to even suggest something like that, because you can't have a cause that does not contribute an effect. Whenever you have a cap, the reason you call it a cap... (laughs) Why do you call this a cap? You call it a cap by virtue of what it contributes. Don't you? Think about this. That's why you call this a cap and you call this the lid, by virtue of what it contributes. Why are you a mother in the family? Why don't they call you the daughter? Because of what you contribute. That's your contribution to the family. Yep. So that is what you contribute. Yeah? So this cap contributes. It has the characteristic of serving the purpose of a cap. You can call this a different thing. You don't have to call this a cap. Let's call it a hat, if you want. You, You know, a name is just a name. But despite what name you call this, regardless of what name you call this, does it not always contribute that effect? Now, let's call it a hat. Does it contribute the hat effect? Does it? Let's call it a cat You might think, well, this is also a hat, so I mean, I said, don't you see? (laughs) Let's call it a cat. Does it contribute a cat effect? No. So no matter what name you use for this, what it contributes is the cap effect. That's why we call this a cap. If you melted this, would you still call it a cap? It's the same material, though. It's the same material. You melt it, not a single atom of it is lost, let's just say. That you heat this, you melt it, and you get it in the shape of a coin. A plastic chip, okay? So the same amount of material. If you put it on a a scale, it's going to give you exactly the same weight. Measure the number of molecules, it's exactly the same. But you no longer call it a cap. Why is that? Exactly. Because now it doesn't contribute the cap effect. So therefore, now I want you to start to think. Why do we give these things these names? Based on their purpose, based on what they contribute as an effect. Based on their contribution as an effect. Now this serves the cap effect, this serves the lid effect, this serves the barrel effect. Inside you have the tube, that serves the tube effect, you have the ink effect, you have the nib effect. If for instance you were to drop this pen this way, on say the tile floor, what's going to happen? this is probably going to get suppressed, and then this is not going to work. yeah. Because there's a little ball inside, it has to be free to move around to um, deliver the carbon inside onto the paper. If that were to happen, would you still keep this? Or would you dispose of it? You generally dispose of it. Why is that? What effect are you not getting right now? Yeah, you're now not getting the writing effect, in other words, the pen effect. Yes, you can use this as a door-stopper if you want, but that's not what you bought this for. You wanted this to serve the pen effect. So the reason you call this a pen is because it serves a purpose, in other words, it serves the pen effect. So do you see that this pen then is not merely the causes, but once again, I'll be the first to say this, it seems bizarre, that is why you can't even compute that, to think of the causes separate from their effects, because that is not so. That's why I said I can't talk of a cap that does not contribute the cap effect. The moment I show this to you, even if I were to call this a cat, you can still see the the cap effect. But let's just say you would never seen a pen in your life before. you would never seen a pen in your life before, I show you one of these things. You might not know what this is. Hmm? You may not know what this is if this is the first time you've seen one of these. So then you'll ask someone, what is that? And then you'll say, it's a cap. So what they might do is, put it on their heads. Because in their world, in their understanding, in their body of knowledge, a cap serves that effect. So then you'll ask, well, this doesn't really serve that effect, does it? You know, can I put this and go out in the sun, and will I be protected? If I go out in the cold, will I be protected? If I go in the fog, will I be protected with this? You won't, you, you know you won't, so therefore you'll again question, but no, how, why do you call this a cap? Because it doesn't serve the cap effect. Then you'll say, no, 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 it's not that kind of cap. It's a cap to a pen. Ah, now I get it. Because you can see how it serves that effect. The only reason I gave you that example is for you to distinguish between the cause and the effect that it contributes. So much so that if you had if you didn't have these things in the world, okay, if you didn't have these things in the world, what is this thing? Exactly, it's just an object. It does not contribute the cap effect. I mean, it can. But then you're gonna to have to have one of these. To this, it serves the cap effect. You can also use this to serve the beauty effect. Let's say you want to use this to, to do some some kind of decoration, right? Some some kind of craft, craft work, right? You want to stick these in a row and and you know maybe design something, something nice. Maybe young children might want to do something like that. Then it's not a cap, it's not serving a cap effect. It's serving an artistic effect. If you stop the, if say say you have a window at home, that that won't lock properly, that maybe you can use one of these to to stick it between the, the pane and the window, and then you say now it is serving the lock effect. Don't you find yourselves like using, you know, things to not in the ways that not in the ways that they were designed to, but you know they're just they're just a, a kludge. So you use them to just serve a, a temporary purpose until you can get it fixed, and so on. Maybe you have a say, a rubber band. I'd say you have a, let's say you have a spoon at home, and the spoon has a handle, but the handle has now come off. So what you might do is you might put the two of them together. Maybe use a bit of wire, right? Or maybe use a rubber band and just you know hold the two things together. You know that that is not what it's for, but you just you know it, it, it gets the job done. As long as it gets the job done you're okay with that. In other words, it's serving that effect. I'll take another example that you can perhaps very easily relate to. Let's say, okay. You've come in for a talk with the Swami Nuhansai. Okay, you've come come in for a session, a discussion, and you wish to offer the Swami Nuhansai some water. So you, on your way, you bring one of these, right, a cup of water. So now the Swami Nuhansai sat on a chair, There's a chair for you, but there's no stool. There are no stools, we don't have any stools. What do you do in that instance? You get another chair. What effect is that contributing now to this arrangement? Stool effect. It's now contributing the stool effect. It's not contributing the chair effect, because for it to contribute the chair effect, you got to use it in that way. But it's always capable of contributing the chair effect. That, is, it's, that ability is always there by virtue of the way in which it is, it is built. It can always contribute that. But right now, in that example I gave you, it's contributing the stool effect. Or you can think of it the, the table effect or whatever. Right, now come back. to. <clears throat> this is all part of it. I'm, I'm just giving you both the core of it and some, some things on the periphery so you can get a good understanding of what you're talking about. So, coming back to the pen then, once again, I have in my hand a pen. I was going to explain to you what, so I explained to you what is there. Now I'm going to try and explain to you what is not there. Okay? There are the causes. We call these the causes. Why do we call these the causes? Why don't I call this the cause, of this? This, because it doesn't, doesn't contribute, that's why. That's why we don't call it a cause. But what about now? Now it contributes, because now it's a different manifestation. It's not the same as this. Agreed all of you? Great. So therefore we call this a causes. This, this is a cause and all these parts they're a cause. Each of these causes, they contribute an effect. We just spoke about that. I need you to understand that the pen is not merely the causes Present, just present. They are the effects that they contribute by being present. That's why I say they participate in this. Maybe not actively, but even passively. So like, you know, the, the, the clip doesn't know that it has to be here. You could, that's why you could put the clip here. Right? The clip can also go like that. Or maybe like that. Right? So they're not actively participating, but they're passively participating in this, in this process. So each of the causes, they, they, they contribute to this effect. Now, when all of these causes come together, as it has done now, as they have done now, each of these causes have also contributed, their, made a contribution. Ultimately, what you have here are a bunch of causes that are in a place, they're in place, They have come together in a certain arrangement, and they are contributing their effect. These effects now form a net effect, or we can also call a resultant effect. You remember for physics we learned this stuff? There's an object, there's a force of 10 Newtons, there's a force of 10 on this side. What happens? Does it keep jumping like this? Why does it not do that? What is the net effect? Net effect is zero. The resultant force is zero. So, if you want to move this to my right, that is your left. What you, what should you do? What are the possible What are the possible options? Take this off. That is one option. Do you have to completely take this off? No. Just remove it. Take, take it down by one, that works as well, doesn't it? Yeah, so at one meter per second squared, it's now going to start moving in that direction. You can also keep this at 10, turn this up one. doesn't have to be one, in fact, just, just ever so slightly, more than this force. So you now have an idea of what net result means. This is basic stuff, most if not all of you have done this sort of thing at school. So this is the resultant effect. The resultant effect on this object now is, if this is nine, this object now starts moving in that direction. Although there's still a force acting in this direction. In the same way, ladies and gentlemen, the causes that are present and participating in this manifestation are all contributing their effects. But what I have here in my hand is not a cap, or a barrel, or a nib, or a tube, or a lid. What I have here is a pen. What you have here is not two forces acting on either side. You know that through physics, but what if I did that? What do you see now? The object doing what? Moving. In fact, you, would, you might even think that there's just a force acting on this object in that direction, because that is the net result that you see. You don't necessarily have to see the whole thing, right? To, to, to come to a conclusion about this object, you can say, even if you didn't, didn't see this and this, if you saw an object moving, you will tell me that there's a net, net effect on this. And that net effect is the object, there's a force acting towards the right-hand side, your left. In the same way, each of the causes that participate in this manifestation, they contribute their effects. Ultimately, this is not just the causes. This is the causes and their effects. In fact, if you could take the causes out but leave the effects, you'd still have a pen. <laughs> but you can't. That's why I was talking about earlier. You know, that's that's bizarre. You can't you can't talk about that. Do you remember, I said cap only the cap effect but not the object, right? So if you could just leave the effects, like in a divorce, if your husband can leave but leave the money, <laughs> I mean, you can still survive, right? <laughs> You'd get the better end of the deal. But unlike that, when, when the causes part, they take away the effect that it contributes as well. That is why when you take each of these parts away, the effects they contribute, are also taken away and then ultimately there is no net effect. That net effect is what you refer to as a pen. Because in here, in my hand, is not a cap and a barrel and a lid and a tube and some carbon and some ink. It's a pen. It's not just the collective word that you use for it. Another example, chemistry gives us plenty of examples for this. Sodium, is, it contributes something. This is a cause. Chlorine, this also contributes something. At room temperature and pressure, this is what? It's a metal. At room temperature and pressure, see I always have to say at room temperature and pressure. Why? Because these are also, they also participate to manifest this. This is also a manifestation. It's not just the result of these that are manifestations. What about the causes themselves? They're also manifestations. So is there anything that is not a manifestation in this world? No, absolutely everything is a manifestation of their respective causes. So this at room temperature and pressure is a gas. The two of them together, you have salt, table salt. This, if you put that in your mouth, you won't live to tell the tale. <laughs> this is going to make you feel very uncomfortable. It'll be corrosive, in fact, if, if, if anything. But this, we add it to our food every day. You can't live without it. So, are you going to tell me that this is merely the two causes, or are they the, the combined effect of these two molecules. That's why we use table salt, because sodium chloride has an effect, a net effect. And that net effect is not the effects of this or the effects of this. When these two participate in 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 an agreement, when these two participate in a group, when they come together, their combined effect can be very different to this or this, or even this and this. Make sense? Yeah, this and this, individually, they, 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 they contribute, this contributes, and this contributes. But once these two contributions come together, now their contribution is not merely this and this. It's the collective collective effect. That collective effect is what we call salt. In fact, if that effect did not manifest, we wouldn't call it salt, we wouldn't use it as salt, whether we call it or not, we wouldn't use it in that manner. So, anicca is all that in one word. That's why when I say the word anicca, everything you've understood from what we just discussed, encapsulated in one word, anicca. That's like asking, what is the Indian Ocean? I can point the Indian Ocean to you. In fact, if you say, no, so I'm not, don't just point me, can you touch it for me? So I know what you're talking about. Right, fine, let's go. So we walk up to the beach, and I hold your hand in mine, and I take your finger, and I dip it in the water, and I tell you, that is the Indian Ocean. Then you'll ask me, what's the bit next to it? Just imagine, you, you walk one foot, and now you dip your toe in there, and then you ask me, well, that's the Indian Ocean, what's this? What does that tell us? You haven't yet understood what I'm trying to explain to you. So, which part of the ocean is the Indian Ocean? All of it is the Indian Ocean. In fact, even if you went to the Atlantic Ocean, I can still show you the Indian Ocean, <laughs> can't I? Can't I? I can still show you the Indian Ocean. What about if you go to the Pacific Ocean? Can I not show you the Indian Ocean? Because ultimately all of the water is the same, right? But you can take some water from the, from the Ganges, huh? and you can take some water from the, from the ocean, uh, put the Ganges to a side, I was talking about holy. Right? People think this is holy, that is not holy and so on. Right? So water from the well at your home, you might think, you know, that is my grandmother, she, she dug the well, so that water is very, very holy. Right? That same water, right? it evaporates due to the heat, and then it forms a cloud, and then it goes and rains somewhere. Right? It rains next door neighbour who you really don't like, and now it's the water in their well. Right? If the next door neighbour brings you a glass of water, and you find out that's from their well, I don't want even to put a, a sip of it. Take that away. I don't want that water. I hate my neighbour and I hate everything about him. I don't even want to take a drop of water from him, you might say. But that water was the water from your well. But we perceive things in a very weird way. This is because of jati. This is the delusion that, that we live in. It's the delusion that I want you to come out of. So I I said, if you ask me where's the Indian Ocean, all of that is the Indian Ocean, but we give it a name. You can't, you know, just imagine if every drop in the Indian Ocean had a name. (laughs) If every drop in the Indian Ocean had a name, and then if you ask me where, show me the, uh, you know, what is that? You'll point at the Indian Ocean and ask me what is that? Now you don't have a collective name, you have to keep naming each of the drops of water. (laughs) I mean, that's bizarre, right? You could never do that. So therefore, we have a collective name for all that water. That body of water is called the Indian Ocean. In the same way, everything that I just explained to you. yeah, That body of knowledge. Make sense? That body of knowledge, I can encapsulate in one word and say that is Anicca. The fact that it is merely What you see here is merely the causes that contribute, they they participate in manifesting this object and what I mean by this object is the manifestation of all the effects of those causes. If those causes did not contribute an effect, you would not have the pen. But you can't imagine a subtle situation. That's why I said it was it's very hypothetical. Right? Actually, you, you can't have that. Just a cause and no effect. You can't have that. Every time a cause takes part, they form an effect. That's why, you know, like say now let's say you and your, your wife or your husband, you're talking about something, and the child walks into the room. Sometimes the conversation changes. Other times you'll ask the poor guy to walk out. That, go away. I mean, that is talking about something. You shouldn't be here. See how that child is participating in that. They're influencing it, aren't they? Either you continue talking about it. Sometimes you might reduce the volume, and then go into a normal tone to a hush-hush voice. Maybe you might go into sign language. <laughs> I go. <laughs> see, see the effect that this—you know—five-year-old. This five-year-old now has an effect. On the, on the manifestation that was manifesting until then. Because the child contributes. You might not like that contribution. That's why you'll say, go away, come back later. Don't come in." Ami and Tati are talking, why don't you learn to knock? So you might not like that contribution, but it still contributes. So when you have a, when you have a cold, now I have this thing going on right now, right? this cough. So that contributes in some way to our conversation. It's, it's not a positive contribution, unfortunately. As I said, every time I cough, it breaks your samadhi. That's why I, don't, I, I, I want to rid, this, rid myself of this cough. It doesn't hurt me, it doesn't bother me, but it interrupts your samadhi. If you're con- 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 concerning yourself with something, focused on something, and then the moment you hear Swami Nasa go, say, "Ayo, Swami say, pow, appa. <laughs> You go, you go into that. You you forget Anikcha. <laughs> you think of Swami Nuhansi. It, it takes you out of that, it takes you out of the three-dimensional world and puts you back into the matrix. That's why I don't like to cough, but there you go. So there are causes and their effects, they are contributed, they, they contribute to to a, a manifestation, some of those Contributions, you see them positively. Other contributions, you see them negatively, but nature is perfect. There is nothing particularly wrong with this. This is as perfect as this. In fact, this is as perfect as this, but you'll tell me it's not. You'll tell me, so Swami said that is not perfect. That is nowhere near perfect. How can that be perfect? You've just taken, here, here's what you say. I'll, I'll say it out loud and you try to think whether this is not what's going through your head right now. You've just taken the cap of a marker pen. Yes? You've just taken the cap of a marker pen and you've just put it on a ballpoint pen. Is this the cap of a marker pen? <laughs> now I know why you're stuck. Yes. <laughs> Has Swaminas woken on the wrong side of the bed or something today? <laughs> yes, this is the cap of a marker pen. Is it? Why, why is he saying no? <laughs> Again, I come back to the pen. This was just a cap. At the manufacturing plant, this was just a cap. This is just a lid. You think that this is the cap of this pen. In the same way you think this is the cap of a marker pen. Show this to someone who does not know that this is part of this or that these are things called caps. There are things called caps in this world. They might think this is maybe like a, a pot or something. They might put some soil into it. I mean, give this to a little, little one at home. Right? Maybe one-year-old, two-year-old, give this to your child at home. What are they going to do with this? They'll either put it in their mouths. Isn't that why kids like always swallow these things and you always have to keep an eye out for them? You give them a coin, what are they going to do? What are they going to do with absolutely anything that they come into contact with? All goes down this way. Yeah, because to them the effect that it contributes to them is the ability to put into one's mouth. That is the effect that, because it does have that effect. It does. Can you, can, does this not have the effect of being able to put into one's mouth? It does. That's why when some of you I see, pen in hand. Hmm? Checking your dental cavities and whatnot. <laughs> I used to do that when I was a kid. And then my teacher taught me a lesson <laughs> and then and I never forgot that. He said, always be compassionate towards others. I said, what's the, what's the connection? He said, if you stick this in your mouth and someone wants a pen, how do you offer it to them? Do you like to use a pen that someone stuck in their mouth? He asked me. I said, no. So then why do you do that? See, he was not able to teach me the lesson that this pen didn't belong to me. I learned that much later in life. This is just a pen. A pen is to write, not for me to write. But when you think that this is my pen, you see no harm in sticking this in your mouth, because it's my pen, so what? If it's my pen, I'm the one who's going to write with this, so what? No, 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 no. This is not the pen for you to write. This is a pen to write. If it's a pen to write, who should write with this? Anyone? See? So that was a lesson that I learned when I was younger and I've been trying to teach that since. <laughs> with uh, more or less success. Sometimes it works. So we don't allow at the monastery. At the monastery if I ever see someone, here's what I do, you can try it with your children. If, sometimes you know, a young Anagarika putas, and you know, sometimes I see them speak the language. This is how we punish them. I say, right, take that pen and rub it between your toes. That's it. It never goes back in the mouth. You don't have to hit them. You don't have to shout at them. Right? Very effective punishment, isn't it? Just rub it against some toe jam. It's not going to go back in the mouth again, because now they're mindful. Until then, you're you're, you're not even mindful, you don't even know you have a pen in your hand, it just goes straight to the mouth. So that way they learn not to stick this in the mouth. Because, you know, on the other hand, you know, you could have all sorts of dirt on this. Doctors will tell you that part, right? But others will tell you, if you want something. If you understand that objects in this world are merely to serve a purpose, then use it for that purpose. Because that is the purpose that they're here to serve. What is water for? To be wasted? No. So we shouldn't use it for that purpose. It's to drink. It's to wash. It's to cook. So we must use it only for that purpose. Not to waste. Now on the point of water, sorry I know I'm sidetracking, but these are all interesting and important things, you know, things that can help develop our lives in in many ways. Now, there's a scarcity of water at the monastery right now. until the work is done with the tank that we are trying to we are working on right now, that's going to take a few more months at the very least, water is becoming a scarce resource at the monastery. So now we are very, very thrifty with, with our water and we are very careful about how we use it. In fact, it is only today you will see um, Swami with their arms bows uh, when we, we try and use Uh, what do you call them, lunch sheets to try and save water because I know the lunch sheets are also not good for the environment but then if we run out of water what do we do? Then we'll all have to leave (laughs) So um, what was I going to say? Oh yes So the other day I was trying to explain to someone because I saw them open the tap and the tap was open full blow Right? And then they just wanted to wash something, maybe a cup or something. And I I explained something that I thought was quite neat because it helps to understand the Dhamma as well. I said, So I'm an answer. Everything in this world that has been created for human use sun, the moon, the stars, right, everything, the soil under our feet, the air that we breathe, the plants, right? Any of these things. So much so that at our monastery, if I you're okay. But, if I see one of our monks or anagarikas or anagarika mahatmiyas even plucking a leaf from a tree for no reason. Sometimes people have that habit, don't they? They just pluck trees and they just drop it on the floor for no reason. Because they're not mindful. Then we have a little punishment at the monastery for that. That leaf goes on your forehead. With a bit of cello tape. And you have to walk around the monastery. So people ask you why you did that. What what this punishment was deserved for? So they have to explain. <laughs> don't do that. So I, I sent a message <laughs> throughout the monastery. We only have very uh, loving punishments like that. We don't hurt. We just teach a lesson. So anyhow, I was I was explaining the 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 point that all these things that we have around us, right, from the soil that touches our feet to the air that we breathe to the water that we use, all of these things. Have been. Nature has all these things for our convenience, don't they? These are there for our convenience. I asked this, uh, the the Swami Nuhansi, He was y- quite young, Swaminandan. I asked him, Swaminandan, don't you think that a drop of water was the product of a meritorious deed? So I asked him, because if water serves the purpose of quenching one's thirst. If water serves the purpose of washing, and you need to wash something, something's soiled, something's dirty, it helps you do that. If water serves the purpose of helping us cook our food, then don't you think that the drop of water is the product of a meritorious deed? It is a byproduct of a meritorious deed. You can't tell me that it's the product of an unmeritorious deed, can you? Because an unmeritorious deed will probably, you will be void of water. But the presence of water is certainly the mer- a meritorious deed. So therefore, I ask them the question, whenever you think about using water, try and conserve water and not waste it, because this is the product of a meritorious deed. Think of it in those terms. A chitta somewhere, typically a sugati chitta, it's not from an animal, maybe a human being at the very least, would have had wholesome thoughts one day about something, about, just about something. I want to give something to someone. I want to cool someone. And when they had those thoughts, there was an energy that was released into the environment and that went into producing a drop of water. So therefore, this water that you waste is not just water. This is the product of a meritorious deed. So take that into consideration and a meritorious deed these are very few and far between you know they don't come every day in fact there is more demerit that goes on in the world than merit that's why in the hells you find more beings than you will ever find in the in the Sugati worlds there are more beings in the in the in the uh, excuse me in the hells so the beings in hell they're not able to produce water they are not able to produce water for, for, for wholesome use, for good use. Because it is not a product of of, of of an unmeritorious deed. Water is a product of a meritorious deed. That's why if you have merits, you get water. If you don't have merits, you don't have water. Isn't it? Even the Buddha on occasions have said, you know, on one occasion he was quite thirsty. And he asked for some drinking water. And there wasn't any around. And so when, when they had to go look for some, he said, there's a, there's a pool but it's muddy. And then he went on to explain an unmeritorious deed that he had done in his past as a Bodhisattva that resulted in the absence of, of clean water. So therefore he explains to us that even things like water, the oxygen that we breathe, the air that we breathe, the sunlight that we get, all of these things, ladies and gentlemen, are products of meritorious deeds. Doesn't necessarily have to be ours. Meritorious deeds of chittas. So therefore whenever we use these resources, We have to bear that in our minds, that this is the product of a wholesome deed. It's a a product of a wholesome thought, so therefore we mustn't waste wholesomeness. Because this world can do with a lot of wholesomeness. There's a lot of unwholesomeness going on, and wholesomeness is very rare. In fact, maybe, just about maybe, the reason that we have all these resources is because Buddhas come and go from time to time. (laughs) Otherwise, how do people learn to do meritorious deeds? Helping someone. Because people are far more focused on themselves and doing something for themselves than doing something for others, right? Selflessness is rooted in Buddhist teaching. Altruism is rooted in Buddhist teaching. There are other philosophers who come and teach these concepts as well, but the core of it is in Buddhist teaching. So, if you ask me, The reason that we have the earth beneath our feet, and the sky above our heads, and there's air to breathe, and then there's sunlight that can produce the food that we eat and the energy that we have, all of this is thanks to one person. You can agree or disagree with me, this is only my personal take, but I have a logic behind it. It's not just uh, women a fancy. There's logic behind it, and I like to think in that way. (laughs) And it is because of the Buddhas that come and go, life is just so livable, all these resources are there, these are the products of wholesome thoughts, wholesome deeds that have once taken place somewhere in this universe, somewhere. Coming back to the pen, Anicca. So when I say Anicca, you've got to think of everything we just discussed. Now you'll tell me also, Swamilas, so how do I go through all that in a brief moment? When you say the word Anicca, must I contemplate on all that, you've just talked about a lot of things. Well, when I say drive your car, when you were learning to drive, you had a lot of things to do, didn't you? You had to check your mirrors, you had to... What is I can't remember now. <laughs> what did you have to do? check the brakes, check the lights, Right when you had to maneuver your car, maybe change lanes, remember? Check the side mirrors, check the rear mirror, Right, and sometimes you had to check your blind spot. Not sometimes, <laughs> that is what you're supposed to do, although people only do it sometimes. <laughs> you've got to check your blind spot before you change lanes. Right? So many things to do. Before you start your engine, before you actually start moving forward, you've got to press the clutch, put it into gear, then you've got to use the accelerators, you've got to use the steering wheel, you know. Remember learning to drive and how you felt like there were so many things you had to do, but now you drive without even thinking about it. How many times did you change gear getting here? Who knows? You don't think about it now. Individually as separate steps because you've done it so many times over and over and over and over. Now driving a car seems like just a single process, a single act. Whereas, actually, driving a car is not one act, there are lots of things that you have to do. Sometimes in sequence, sometimes in sometimes parallelly. In the same way, as you reflect on Anicca, yes, we, we've gone through a lot of stuff. I've tried to explain to you how this is merely the contribution of the causes that, I beg your pardon, the effect of all the causes that contribute in this. This is a participatory event. It is by participation of all of the causes that you have this this effect. This is the net effect. This is the resultant effect. This is also an effect. So, in fact, you take out one of these effects, one of these effects... Oops. Sorry. (laughs) Take out out one of those effects, the gentleman is not going to talk to me again. (laughs) It is no longer a pen. It does not have the pen effect anymore. You still say, well, can't you still write with it? Yes, but it's not the pen that you, that you understand. Because now if you turn this upside down, this is going to fall, it's going to come out. So, this concept is the concept of anicca. Causes, contributing, their respective effects, which as a resultant effect manifests. In this manner, okay. But when you look at this, you perceive that there's something more than that here. You perceive that there's a unit, there's an object, there's an the best word is entity. You perceive that there's an entity that is a pen. This perception of an entity is not in the object, is it? But when presenting the object to you, you still perceive that. So if you are going to perceive something that's not out there, there's only one way that can happen. Once again, if you perceive something that's not out there, it's like if I showed you, uh, you know, they show shadows with the fingers. Is there a name for that art? Anyone in the audience? There must be a name for it. We'll find out. But you know what I'm talking about, right? You hold it behind the screen, right? in front and just between the screen and a light source, and then you, you form these shadows. So, when you do that, you people, you know, they're really, they're really amused by this. Because they see something that is not actually out there. It's like a bhoota, right? So, at, you know, at night, I remember Guru Chandru giving this example one day, at night, you see a, maybe a, a branch of a tree swaying in the wind. But you don't see that it's a branch of a tree. From afar, it's dark out there, you think someone's waving at you. I mean, that can... That can really scare someone, right? So you're scared because you're seeing something that's not actually out there. So when you're seeing something that's not out there, it has to be a hallucination. In Buddhist terms, we call it an illusion. Okay, so let's come back to the pen then. There are only the participating causes that contribute their effects to manifest this manifestation. We call it a pen. We call it a pen because this collection, this arrangement of causes, this collection, there. Net contribution is that of a pen, so we call it a pen. But, you perceive that there is something more than that going on here. That's why you tell me that this is the lid of this pen. It belongs. When I ask you, is this the lid of this pen? You tell me, no, this is the lid of this pen, Swami in answer. Let me say that again. This lid is not the lid of this pen, it's the lid of this pen. Do you see the difference? That's why you feel this is incomplete now. When you say this pen, you're talking about the complete pen. Because otherwise I could take all the parts out, and then, of which pen is this the lid of? Or is this the cap of? You have no answer. If I took all the parts out, and then laid them on the the table, now, which part am I going to hold up to you and say, let me actually do it for you. This sounds like Greek sometimes. This is just the lid and this is the cap. Are you, are you really seriously going to tell me that this cap is, the, is a part of this pen? Why, you know, if I did like, held it this way, you'll feel it's weird. But if I held it something, somewhere up here, oh yeah, that's, that's more like it. Why? Who's filling up the rest of it? Your mind is. So, where is the rest of it? Ah, the rest of it is here. So, this is the point I'm trying to make to you. Let's be careful with this. Once bitten, twice shy. So, this lid, then, is not part of this pen. It's part of this pen. And so is every other part. So, this pen is an image in your mind. Yes, this is a manifestation, but you have the complete pen because there is no complete pen here. These are just the parts and their effects constantly contributing to to this manifestation. But you perceive that there is an object here, it's an entity, and that pen is a a package. That is what you refer to as an entity, a standalone object. It's self-sufficient, it stands by itself. It has properties, you'll tell me. You'll tell me that this pen has properties, where in fact actually it's the cap that has a property. It's the lid that has properties. It's the nib that has properties. But you tell me that the pen has properties. That is the entity that you create in your mind. You see this whole thing as one object. (coughs) Now, the problem with that is this. Well, before I explain to you the problem behind that, that is Dukkha. So we discussed Anicca. Now you have Dukkha. You can spell it with or without an H. That is not. That is Dukkha. The perception, there are two kinds of Dukkha I want to try and explain to you in the time we have today. We'll elaborate on that further in the coming weeks. When you, when you look at this pen, you perceive an entity. That entity is the result. You perceive such an entity because dukkha is forming in your mind. Okay? Dukkha is a product of causes, just as this pen as well. Dukkha is also a manifestation. Because ignorance and attachment, avidya, Pachya, Sankar, you know the dependent origination process. Yeah? That dependent origination process, you see, it's called the dependent origination process. The, what it originates is dukkha also called jati. That is what it originates. The causes are avidya, sankara, vinyana, namarupa, salayatana, pasta and so on. You can simply summarize it as ignorance and attachment. So this is the dukkha that we are referring to and this is the dukkha that happens in the mind. Are you all okay with that? Is that clear to you? Once again, you are perceiving something mentally that is not out here. Here, you don't have a complete entity of an object. What there is are the causes that are contributing their effects and ultimately you have the net effect. That is the pen. But, in your mind, you perceive that there is actually a whole object here. That is more than just the parts and the effects contributing towards this. That is because in your mind, you have this thing called jati, or in other words, dukkha. It's a disease of the mind. That's all it is. Don't worry too much about it. It's a disease of the mind. It's a hallucination of the mind. the mind's gone insane. I mean you say, don't worry about it, don't you know, worry. <laughs> but don't worry. because worrying is not going to help you with that, because worry itself is also a symptom of dukkha. That's why you have worry. Now there's another kind of dukkha. That is this, the fact that all of this, these causes, they are all bound together, aren't they, into one package? See, for example, when you pull this pen by the cap, doesn't the rest of it come along with it? Doesn't it? See, the other parts also come along with it. That's why when I ask you to fetch me a pen, you don't have to run around the room looking for a pen. You don't have to run around the room picking the causes for the pen, because all those causes are together. Bear with me, it's fine. And you, you won't get it the first time. I mean, you, I'll have to probably explain this 10 times, 50 times maybe, before you get the concept, but it's fine. When you pull this pen by its cap, the rest of it comes together. That is not because this is a pen. That is because of the way it's constructed in nature. There are forces acting on this object. There are bonds between these molecules that keep it all together as one package. The problem is, that arrangement does not help you at any point. Because To a mind that suffers from jati, this is poison. It's poison. Because when I show you a pen, I'm actually showing you all of these causes together. See, what if I could show you just the causes and their effects and not the whole thing together? But it's impossible to do that. When I show you an object, all things about that object are naturally together. There's a reason for that. It's the same reason why exercise is so painful. That's a hint. Because some of you are probably still working the problem in your mind. Once again, all of the causes that have produced this object in nature. I'm talking now about the external object. This is the external object, I'm not talking about the mind now, okay? This is completely and entirely about the external world. Whether minds existed or not, this would still be the case. Whether you're all, if, even if we were all Arahants, this pen would still be one object outside, wouldn't it? In, this, in the world out there, this would all be together. The reason I say if you pull it by one end, the other comes along with it is just to explain to you that this is all in one package. Don't you see it's a nice, neatly, nice, neat package? Think about your bodies, for example. It's all one package, isn't it? You know, it's not like your head comes today and your legs come tomorrow when you go somewhere. It's all one package. Therefore, that arrangement does not support your course of Nibbana. It's not meant to anyway. Because they are naturally a unit, they appear to be a unit. Not actually a unit, they appear to be a unit. It is not conducive to your nibbana. Because it gives you, (coughs) excuse me, very untimely. (laughs) Because it adds fuel to the fire. Your fire of jati, you have that fire going on inside, it adds fuel to the fire. When you say, when you look at a pen, you can't help but see an, you know, a complete object. The pen does not, you know, the pen is not strewn across the room. It's all together, see? That doesn't help you on your quest for Nibbana. Because now when you look at a pen, you see the whole thing as one. What if, when you wanted a pen, you could see this, for example, energy from the universe coming together, some energy will come from the, from the right the others will come, some will come from the north some will come from the south some will come from the west energy will come together, bundle up and then form this in real time just imagine if that were to happen now that supports you on your compre- comprehension that there, is, there, is, there are no entities because you can see whenever you want a pen you'll have to say pen and what happens? energies from the universe they start flowing towards you Right, and then these—you know—you've seen this in animations, cartoons, and things like that, right? And how someone likes—remember Star Trek? Beam me down. right? <laughs> so what would happen? Uh, the machine would almost like disintegrate everything, and then in one place, they would—all that would come and integrate it back into one one unit. So, just imagine when you said pen, right? Like magic fairy dust would all just come back together, and this would you know, simply appear in your hand. Now, that would help you, would it not, to grasp this concept, that there is no fixed entity here. But you see, the world is not like that. It doesn't help you with that. Therefore, when you say pen, you see a fully formed structure, which resembles a pen, which looks like a pen, and for all intents and purposes, it is a pen. (laughs) This is the external Dukkha the quality or the characteristic of Dukkha in the outside world. That does not change even when you become an Arahant. How can it? Because it's an external manifestation. See, look at anything in this room. Including yourselves. This applies even to Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, vijnana. All things are like that. Once again, there's a reason for that. Because I'm nice to you. I'll come back to the question. Give it an answer, and we will conclude the sermon for today. Because in that answer, you may also find the answer to this question. Why is it that when you say, when you look at a pen, it it is already in a structure? Why does the pen not like fall apart? Why is it all together? Let's come back to the exercise example. Digestion of food is not painful you you got to question, why was it not designed in such a way that there were nerve endings, sensory nerve endings in my intestines, in my stomach, in my food pipe, so that you know, I could feel all of the things that are going on inside. It's not designed in that way. But when you exercise, when you move your arms and your legs, when you stretch your arms, your, you move your bones, your, your muscles, right, your tendons, these things, they ache with use. Here's a reason. With one, you exert energy. In other words, you release energy into the universe. When you work, okay? When you work, when you do work, when you exercise, when you run, carry weights, whatever, you're releasing energy into the universe. When you eat, you take your food, when you digest, you're now taking energy from the universe and you're capturing it for yourself. What does the mind want after all? To do which one of these two? Release or separate? It wants to separate. Because of ignorance, the mind constantly wishes to separate energy in this world, in this universe, for itself. Because separation is the name of the game, right? That's what the mind wants to do. So even where energy is concerned, universal energy, what we call pure energy is concerned, all of these things that you see around you have been packed, packaged, composed into individual units because that is what the mind wants. These are toys for the mind. See, here's a toy for the mind. That's why I said, this dukkha characteristic is a toy for the mind. The mind created it because the mind wants separation. So the mind creates matter in a way that separation or separate is how they present themselves. So when you exercise, you release energy to the universe. When you consume food and you digest, that takes energy from the universe for yourself. Of course, only one of them can be painful because that is what the mind designed this body for to capture universal energy. If digestion of food was painful, if your heart beating was painful, there would be constant messages to the mind to say, hurting, 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 stop, 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 stop. The mind doesn't want that, because the mind designed this for its benefit. But hold your arm out like this for a little while. What's your mind going to say? Come on, come on, down, down, enough now, enough, come on now. Right? now, Down? Down? Little boy? Okay, that's it. (laughs) Because when you are extending your arm, when you are stood up, when you are walking, when you are running, when you are exercising, you are releasing energy back into the universe. Is that what the mind wants? An ignorant mind, is that what the ignorant mind wants? Certainly not. So therefore those things, those activities will always be painful. Whatever activity you do that involves releasing of energy into the universe, those things the mind has an inbuilt mechanism to stop you from doing that, to make it painful. <laughs> so who built your bodies then? Who designed your bodies? The mind did. You can you can see that the body is simply a slave to the mind. What the mind wanted, which was to capture, trap universal energy into these packages. You know your muscles, your bones, whatever you are made of is ultimately universal energy, energy that belongs to the universe, captured, structured, formed, and packaged in a certain way. That's what you are, including this. The food that you eat is also universal energy packaged up. It's packaged up, you know, because we can't take the energy from the sun, what do we do? We eat plants, plant products. We eat animals. Because that is the sun's energy, universal energy, but just packed up in ways that are consumable. Isn't it? When you eat a carrot, isn't that the universe's energy? But you can't just gulp universal energy, right? You can't just take in universal energy. So what you have to do is, energy has first got to be converted into matter. Then that matter has to be consumed. But what you've ultimately consumed is energy. Because what the mind wants is to capture universal energy for itself. Because what the mind wants is separation. Because it's me, 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 and me, so therefore everything in this world is mine. Me and I and mine are the most important things in this world, so therefore whatever is out there that is of use, of that is good, has to be whose? It's got to be mine. If there's only one person in this world who could be happy, who has that person got to be? Come on, Buddhas in the room? <laughs> it's got to be me, of course it's got to be me. Because that is what the mind wants. So I just wanted to prove that point to you, that these bodies, so don't fall victim to these bodies, don't don't let the body trick you. Especially don't let the mind trick you. When the body reacts in certain ways, right? do understand that this is entirely the mind's doing. The mind has designed this body to be used as a slave to achieve what the mind wants. Just look at your ears for a second, and you can see mine. You can't see yours, but you can see mine, right? Just look at the way they are constructed. It's to capture, isn't it? It's not to disperse. It's to capture. Look at the eyes, for instance. It's to capture. Look at the nose. What are all these things doing? They're taking in what belongs to the universe for one's own use, one's own consumption. But do these sights belong to me? What about the sound that's in this room right now, the ambient sound, let's say? A bird's chirping out there, who does that belong to? Who does it belong to? That's the wrong question to be asking, it doesn't belong to anyone. But I have an ear to do what? To capture that. To capture that sound for my personal use. Because the mind always wishes to separate. Whenever jati happens, that is therefore the perception of a self, Now. The be-all and end-all of existence is the preservation of that self to preserve the self, the self is nothing more than separation itself, so therefore preservation of something is the continual production of that. If you want to preserve pottery, pottery, what reason is easy, you know what we do make pots. I, if we want to preserve that as a as a as an art, a form of art, or a, um, what do you call it, a, um, as a, as an occupation, or there's a word for it, I can't remember it. Hmm? Yes, um, it'll come to me. When if you want to preserve pottery, because it's a, it's a traditional. Art, isn't it? Like we, we have pottery and we, we make lovely things, nice things and so on. Uh, if, let's say, say traditional dance, that'll be a better example. Traditional dancing, Candian dance, and, you know, up country, down country and so on. These, these things, for us to preserve them, what must we do? Take some pictures and put in a museum? What must we do? Continue doing them. So if you want to preserve the self, what must you do? Continue separating. So therefore, your physical form has to be constructed in a way to support the mental expedition, this mental effort, this mental need to, to separate. That's why your bodies are formed in this way. And that is why eating, digesting, these things, they don't, you, know, you don't have nerve endings in your, in your intestines, in your digestive system, because if you did, the separation of energy would be very painful, but you have nerve endings. Just imagine—you know—if you didn't feel the, the the physical discomfort of exercise, wouldn't that, who wouldn't sign up for that? Why is going to the gym such a terrible, hard thing to do? Why do you always try and come up with excuses not to? Even if you were just you know exercising at home, someone says you know do fifty push-ups a day. Once you've done ten, like you're like do i must i but you get a a packet of biscuits that's got 50 biscuits in it Uh, at the end of 10 cookies do you feel like no i shouldn't really be eating my own. what you're really thinking is can i have another one another one another one as long as your stomachs because your stomach has some nerve endings in there so you know it doesn't explode because you you can only i mean you should stop right when it's full right so uh, once you have sated your, your stomach, you have to stop. That's why it has these nerve endings. But the digestion part of it, there are no sensory nerve endings there. But 50 push-ups is what you've got prescribed from your physical instructor, but after you've done 10, you feel exhausted. But 50 cookies is what you bought for yourself, after you've done 10, you want the remaining 40. <laughs> That's how it works. Because one is about taking in energy, the other is about releasing energy. Releasing energy is not what we've signed up to do. Because once you become an arahant, right, you lose this sense of belonging about everything. Even the chitta no longer belongs to you. But right now you say, my body, my mind. You don't just say it, you actually feel that. But once you become an arahant, you don't feel that way. So therefore, Once this disperses and goes back to the universe, there is no need for a portion or a quantity of energy from the universe to come back and reform either as a chitta or as a body. There is no need for that. Because there is no sense of belonging about it. There is no need for separation. So whenever you find yourself exerting yourself, maybe if you have to do some exercise once in a while, at least the exercise is good. You've got to do exercise. Right? Otherwise, your bodies won't last long enough for you to be able to do what your minds have to do. Now that you've brought this package, you've got to maintain it. Right? You brought her home, now you have to maintain it. Like that. <laughs> you brought this home, now you have to maintain it. Because you have no choice about it. So, do some exercise, especially all of you, do some exercise. This is not what you came to the monastery to learn, <laughs> I know. But, do some exercise because you need it to be, to be healthy and to sustain your lives long enough for you to be able to practice the, the path and attain Nibbana. Once you've attained Nibbana, I'll still say do some exercise because your existence is, is very important for others. So you can continue to preach the Dhamma. You can help other people understand the Dhamma. But if everyone around you were arahants, and you've you also attained arahanthood, from there on I would not say, I would not ask you to do exercise. It's not necessary. Well, what's the point? So we live for our salvation, as well as that of others. So therefore, whatever causes you have to contribute towards that, do it compassionately. Remember the other day I told I told you when you pay your taxes, do it happily. Because you have to pay it anyway, yeah? Unless you are trying to evade tax payments and that's bad, that's wrong. When you pay your taxes, if you have to pay them anyway, why don't you do it happily? You know, taxation I know I'm sidetracking. Taxation is a method that the state, the government has given you to contribute to the entire nation. Why don't you see it that way? It's all about perspective. You can't change anything in this world. You just have to change your perspective on things. Don't go around changing the world. The taxation system is an opportunity that the state has given you, based on your income level, to make a contribution to the entire nation. Do you realize how much merit you can earn from that? You, you pay five rupees of tax, let's just say, ten rupees of tax, a rupee of tax. That rupee goes into running the whole country. Because you don't know what you're paying to, right? Whether it's going to be used for defence, education, food, health, you don't know what it's going to go into. So you just want to contribute towards the running of the country. So therefore, when you see the roads being paved, when you see the bushes being trimmed, when you see the streetlights going on, going up, when you see medical centers establishing themselves and treating people, when you see the, the hungry being given food and the homeless giving, given shelters, can't you rejoice? You can because thanks to the taxation system, you have managed to, you have the opportunity to contribute towards that. Do it happily. What most people do is they pay taxes and earn demerits. <laughs> Don't they? Most people do that. Bad attitudes. Poor thinking patterns. They have to pay as well as earn demerits. Think not about whether the politicians are going to be using this money properly, whether they're going to be you know, laundering this money or using it for their own nefarious causes. Don't think about any of that. That's for them to do. This is for you to do. When you offer something to the Swami do you have to go and check whether he uses it or not. That's for him to do. This is for you to do. The Buddha never said, offer something and go and see how it's been used. No. When you pay your taxes, pay it very happily. And use it as an opportunity to rejoice in all the goodness that's happening around the country. Because no one charges you tax to do something bad, right? They charge you tax to do something that, is, that contributes to the economic, cultural you know, growth of the nation. So you don't actually pay tax to do something bad. You pay tax for something good. So, so rejoice in that. Why was I talking about tax? Oh, yes. So, along the same lines, when you exercise, for those of you who still have to do some exercise, if you're alive, do some exercise. That's all I'm saying. So, if you're. Do you have to do exercise? Just check whether you're alive. If you are, do some exercise. <laughs> when you do some exercise, do it out of compassion. How do you do it out of compassion? Exactly. Because if you can, Make this, make this body last another day, just by doing a little bit of exercise. If you can make this body last another week, another month, another year, can you imagine the amount of service you will render in that year? Let me ask you this question. Do you want Guru Hamdala to be unhealthy or healthy? There you go. Why? I don't mean for his sake. Hmm? For our sake. Yes, so for that, he has to be healthy, mustn't he? If he doesn't get any physical activity, don't you think he ought to be doing some exercise? Hmm? Because does that not help him to prolong his physical existence so that his mind can continue to work in that body and continue to serve mankind and spread the Dhamma and so on? Now don't read between the lines here. Just take what I'm telling you. Don't ask go around to do exercise. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. I'm just giving you the concept, the principle of it. So shouldn't you do exercise then? You're lay people. So what are the restrictions? Nothing, none whatsoever. If you want to attain Nibbana and you feel that your understanding is now able, through your understanding you can also help others, Do it out of compassion. So when you start doing your exercise, you start to feel the aches and the pains in your body. You sat down to do the 50 push-ups, but 10 into it, now you're already tired. Do a few more out of compassion. Then the heart can rejoice in it. Physically, it'll hurt. Yes, but the mind, it can rejoice in it and start earning some merits out of it. I always like to take The glass is half-full perspective on life. Life always throws opportunities at you. Recently I got to hear one of our 18-minus doers doing a speech. She gave this wonderful analogy. She said, when someone throws lemons at you, just make lemonade out of it. When someone throws bricks at you, use them to build something useful. Don't throw them back at them. In the same way, when life says you have to do exercise, accept it gracefully and use it as an opportunity to do in some minutes. It's all in the mind. There is nothing in this world, ladies and gentlemen, that can hurt you mentally. Nothing. Every obstacle and challenge you come across, Just have the right attitude. We have our teachers to help us to get the right attitudes first. I had a mentor in my life when I I was at work. That's when I found him. He taught me a lot of things about life and how to look at life. In a very two-dimensional way. But then I found my teacher. He opened a whole new horizon. And then I started to look at life in an even broader perspective. Now, I think there's hardly anything that can give me a bad day. Even when there are things going on, at this monastery, you know, we have, what, 400 or so permanent residents, and all of you who come and go, some of you daily, right? So there's enough and more problems to solve on a daily basis. But I always see them as an opportunity. It's not that I force myself to see them that way. I have trained myself to see that in that way, and now it comes to me naturally. No complaints. Because all this is an opportunity to serve the Sambuddha Sasana. So when you do some exercise, think of it as an opportunity to serve the Sambuddha Sasana for your Nibbana as well as that of others. You have children still with you, young children maybe. Look after them and give them the best you can. Because now they are growing up in noble association. With you as their parents, they will grow up to be wonderful human beings. Do it on behalf of the Sambuddha Sasana. This is not saying, give them up to the Sasana. You don't have to give them up to the Sasana. They can still do the Sasana while at home. Because if what they are saying are good things that can help heal a broken heart and give them the actual answer to life's problems, aren't they doing the Sambuddha Sasana? they're going to come across friends, they're going to come across their siblings, you know, people at work when they grow up, friends from school when they're at school, and they're going to come to them with all sorts of problems. Your son or daughter is the best friend of someone else, someone else's daughter or someone else's son. And thankfully, that best friend, your child's best friend, has one of the best friends a friend could have, because you give him noble association. See how fortunate your son's best friend's parents are, because their son's best friend is your son. You give them noble association. You send them to Dhamma school. You teach them how to solve their life's problems using the Dhamma. You explain to them that there is no pen here, it's just a manifestation. So therefore, when this breaks, it's not the pen that broke, it's merely a different manifestation, that's all. But if the pen breaks, now there is death. That is the death of the pen. This is marana, which is the product of jati. That's why they say jati pachya, jara, marana. It's always jati pachya. Dependent in jati you have jara, which is decay, and marana, which is death. This pen doesn't, never decays, this pen never dies because it never existed. What is here is simply the manifestation of causes. The causes contributing an effect, and this is the resultant effect. Ten years' time from now, those causes will contribute a different effect. Six years from now, those causes will contribute a different effect. If you step on this, those causes will contribute a different effect. That's all. It's not the pen that broke. That's how your understanding of jati can help you free yourselves from the eleven great fires. Let's continue our discussion again next week. OK, that is all then. Take a moment to transfer all the merit that we have acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, inviting the Mahasanga to deliver the sermons, and creating a conducive environment so that all could come along, practice the path, and attain to Nibbana, as well as those who are unable to be here today can still listen to the talks online and achieve and aspire to the same ultimate bliss. With all that in mind, let us take a moment to transfer all the that we have all acquired to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, throughout the world who have thus far predicted and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down to the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand, and comprehend the Dhamma. There is also transfer these maids to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief leaders of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. There is also transfer these maids to the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us transfer these merits to our teacher, Guru Swami Nuhantse, as well as all the monks resident at the monastery and the Anagarikan. Let us transfer these merits to Guru Swami as well as all the monks, Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us also transfer these merits to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by translating these talks, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them. May they all rejoice in these merits. Let us also transfer merits. To the friends of our monastery, our devotees, who for the sake of merits to help them attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana, continue to sustain the Mahasanga. This includes everyone from those of you who provide the Mahasanga with shelter, arms, robes, and medicines, as well as those who provide their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. May they all rejoice in these merits. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcoming any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the Noble Eightfold Path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits. To our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our friends, our acquaintances, our employers and employees, our teachers, our friends as well as anyone and everyone in this long journey of samsara, who have helped us, supported us, and assisted us in any way, shape, or form. May they all rejoice in these merits, and by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcoming obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who've committed themselves to protect and fulfill the Samudhasana and preserve the Sasana. Let us also transfer these merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. May they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibban. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer these merits to our loved ones, those who have passed away in our name, our forefathers, our ancestors, reminding ourselves that it is in their blood, sweat, and tears today we are able to enjoy the comforts that we, that, we, that we do. And practice the path in peace and harmony. Let us also remind ourselves of the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation, as well as our, those who lost their lives in the wars be they friend or foe. Let us also transfer this message to those who lost their lives in natural disasters and calamities, such as, well as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, fires, floods pandemics and so on, reminding ourselves that in this infinitely long journey of samsara, they will all have been mothers and fathers to us, friends and acquaintances to us, they will have gone the extra mile, gone out of their way to help us, support us and assist us in any way, shape or form possible and available to them, being incredibly grateful towards all of them and with an abundance of compassion and loving kindness that has transferred all of the merits we have all today, we earn today, as well as throughout our journey of sansara, to all of them, and by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the Noble Eightfold Path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, may by the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we will be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And may you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become a Rahatan Mahanse or a Arahat Teranin Mahanse in this very life itself, and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. <clears throat> and the members of the Mahasangha will transfer their blessings to you.
1: Rāga-ginnen mithatm vā Deśa-ginnen mithatm vā Moha-ginnen mithatm vā Nibbāna-parama-sukhayan Sukita tare vetna Nibbana parama sukha yen Sukita tare Nibbana parama sukha yen Sukita tare Mamada Siyalu Loka Siyalu Satm Vayao Nibbana Parama sukhayen Sukhita Tara Vetnva Nibbana Parama sukhayen Sukhita Tara Vetnva Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukhita Taravetanva Raga Gini Niveva Dresha Gini Niveva Moha Gini Niveva Nivan sapalabhiva, Nivan sapalabhiva, Nivan sapalabhiva. Tanurvange suvisyananta maha guna velen silo loka silo satyoma nibbana parama sukhen sukta taravitva sadhu sadhu sadhu.